Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by John Howard Steele, attorney and author of Caged Lion, Joseph Pilates and His Legacy. John, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's certainly my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. So one of the things that surprised me when I first picked up your book was how long Pilates has been a thing, but also that Pilates was named after a man, a very fascinating man. Could you please talk about how you came to know him and how you came to write this book? Yes, I'll be happy to. I came to know him through my mother, who came to know him through a choreographer, friend of hers from, I guess, from college. And she went to him uh, for a few years, got my father to go to him, and just raved about him constantly, about this great genius with the body and all of that. It was uh, moderately embarrassing for me. Uh, I kept thinking, you know, my dad's going to be jealous of this guy. But anyhow, she kept raving about him. And uh, I, at that point, was uh, very athletic, but nothing like going to a gym or anything. No one was. This is the early 1960s. And uh, I did have at the time and had for uh, many years a sort of chronic stiff neck problem that would hit me, oh, it would hit me out of the blue if I slept badly, tension at work or something. And it was a very uncomfortable thing and also uh, made me walk a little strangely. And she kept saying, oh, you've got to go to this uh, fantastic guy, Joseph Pilates. He'll fix it. He'll fix it. And I, I, I kind of, you know, discounted most of a lot of my mother's sort of avant-garde things. I, I perceived this guy as a kind of a charlatan or a quack because she fell for all this kind of stuff and never, and I kept resisting. But finally, I gave in. I said, all right, all right. And I didn't give in really to fix my uh, neck because I didn't think this guy could do it. I uh, I gave in to get her to stop, you know, pushing me so hard and made an appointment. And I went downtown in New York to see him early in the morning with an attitude that was really terrible. I mean, my attitude was I, I'm going here to prove what a jerk he is. But it turns out, he kind of got control of me within two or three minutes, maybe even seconds. And by I mean control, I was just uh, whatever was in my head left. And I did what he said. It was like he was some kind of dog trainer. And he brought me into his gym at the time, and uh, no one was there. He, and he started to teach me what he then called contrology. And I had a terrible uh, session, difficult session with him, but I kept up with him. I was very determined. And at the end of it, um, maybe I shouldn't spoil the book, but at the end of it, something terrible happened. 
I left thinking, oh, boy, I'll never go back there again. But over the next couple of days, I changed my mind without really even thinking much about it. I went back, and uh, from that moment on, I became uh, very enthusiastic, and I stayed with it from 1963 to now. So it's... uh, It's been quite a journey. One of the things I really appreciated about the book is how well you paint a picture. And Joseph Pilates himself, physically, I don't know that he would represent what we think of when we think of a man who is incredibly athletic and started this, you know, really notable exercise regimen. He had a lot of physical challenges. He was missing an eye. He had rickets from his childhood. And yet he was this incredible kind of tiny powerhouse. Uh, so, And I, I really got a picture of that as a reader. And you talk about his gym and entering his gym and the wooden implements that he'd built and the smell of the oil. And it just was, uh, it, you really were able to paint a clear picture. And I just was struck by how much that has stayed with you from, you know, the 1960s for it to be that vivid in your mind. When you were in the process of writing, was it difficult to bring that kind of level of detail or or is it really that present for you? It wasn't difficult at all. Uh, surprisingly, I mean, it, it's still, as you described it, I could see it as if I... I was back there then. It left such a deep, deep impression on on me. It just sort of came out easily. What was difficult, and I think this is something that uh, lawyers will relate to who try to write things that aren't legal, was getting my inner lawyer uh, calm down so I could write something that was a story, that was not an argument, that was not a technical uh, document covering every possibility. Or uh, That was hard, and uh, it was very hard for me to find my uh, storytelling voice when I started writing. I started writing the book in 2000, maybe eight or nine. I I did my first lecture on the topic in 2007. And people said, oh, you gotta, you gotta write a book. You gotta write a book. So I thought about it. And then I started to write this book. I, I had started during a vacation and I, I got kind of caught up in it and telling these uh, stories. But I actually wrote this book three <laughs> separate times, maybe four. And the first time I wrote it, it was the lawyer in me uh, just uh, wouldn't shut up and argued every point, made it two or three times, uh, made sure I didn't leave anything out. And it, it was terrible. I read it. I said, Jesus, this is awful. But somehow, 
I kept at it. Then I wrote it once. Uh, maybe I tried again in kind of a New York Damon Runyon-ish style, or kind of a wise guy style. That was equally bad, if not even worse. <laughs> and then, and I was getting quite discouraged, I liked the process of writing. And I liked that as a lawyer, too. I love writing briefs and articles and this and that, but uh, this was kind of challenging because I'd read it and I'd say, oh, no one, no one's going to like that or read that. And then I decided once I'm going to write it in the uh, third person. I'm going to be a character in the book rather than the narrator. And I, I wrote that and it too, I, I can uh, state absolutely honestly, it was just awful. I mean, it was just stuff, you know, you'd laugh at if you read. But it freed me up somehow by looking at myself as a character. When I went back to write this final book, uh, the book that is published, uh, it came quite easily. It, it almost wrote itself after I got my lawyer uh, quieted down. And the way that happened, I can't explain exactly why, but by looking at myself as a character, I was able to relax or let go or whatever the expression might be. And it started to flow much easier. And really getting back to your point, Lee, the memory came back equally easily. I just remember being there. I put myself in the scene as a character, but I wrote it as a narrator. And, it, you know, page after page just came out. And what I love about you talking about the lawyer in you is this is also reflected when you first came to Joe to the gym. You talk about how your very first session, essentially, you started out caught up in your head about performing the good student. And I think that so many lawyers have that experience and that kind of psychological need for their teachers to recognize how good of a student I'm being. Um, and it wasn't until he was taking you through these physical exercises that you were able to let that go. Is that been your experience doing Pilates? Does it free you from getting caught up in your head like I know so many attorneys do? Well, I, I don't think it, I mean, I think that's a absolutely delicious parallel because, uh, there's definitely something there. I think it may have. I mean, I was mostly a litigator in my career. I was kind of a lone ranger litigator. I, I wasn't in a big firm or the U.S. attorney's office. I didn't have a lot of associates. But I did have very complicated cases, and I took them one at a time. And I think one of the things that did help me, uh, particularly if I had to try a case or argue a motion or an appeal, I became much less self-conscious and 
more relaxed. And, you know, there was something about maybe how Joe taught or even the exercise, the concentration on the exercise and the letting go of the concentration on how I looked that was extremely helpful for me. I was always very relaxed in court and relaxed with clients and relaxed in negotiations. And I think there may have been a lot to that, Lee, that uh, somehow Joe taught me not to be so damn self-conscious and not to worry so much about how I looked and what grade I got and my performance uh, from someone else's view. It was like, just do your best. And that's all Joe ever asked anyone to do. Now, you were in your late 20s, and he was either in his late 70s or early 80s when you met. But you ended up forming a relationship with him and his wife. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was very strange. And uh, I met, uh, uh, we're talking now, you know, around 1963, 64, I was invited out of the blue by Clara to come up and have a beer with Joe after work. And it was uh, like, wow, that I couldn't quite understand it. I mean, I was working in the studio, so to speak, or studying in the studio, it's, or gym, as he would call it. And, uh, you know, he was my trainer, my... Uh, and that was all. We didn't talk about anything else. There'd been no other contact. But all of a sudden, she asked me if I would come up and have a beer. I had very little to do with her up to that point. It was almost all Joe. And again, I thought about it. I said, oh, all right. And <laughs> I did. It was, And that, too, was extremely... Uh, difficult at first. Uh, there was no cultural, social background connection that Joe and I had with one another. I mean, we were from absolutely two different worlds. They were 50 years apart in age. He was not interested in any of, you know, the topics that you may talk about sports, politics, uh, apartments in New York, whatever it is, uh, there was no point of contact. And so it was quite difficult sitting uh, with him and Clara, very stiff. They lived in a very, very bare bones kind of uh, way, uh, very basic, but it kept going and they kept inviting me, and I kept going to the point where I would go up there after work. I, I was not happy in my home life at that point. In fact, I was unhappy, so it was nice to have a distraction. And there was something about Joe and Clara that uh, was nurturing me in some way, helping me, saving me in, in many ways, making me feel appreciated or, or something. And so I kept going. And uh, Joe and I would then, he would take me out for walks on 8th Avenue, which I <laughs> I uh, have several stories in the book about. 
I love it when you talk about how he would analyze as you're walking past someone, he may, you know, nod over to them and say, oh, I think that man's probably uh, a dentist or does something, you know, very detailed. Look at how tightly he's holding that shoulder. I could fix that. With contrology, I could fix that. And I just, that's so interesting and fascinating to think about the way that he approached the world, which was seemed to be from your description, okay, but I could fix that. <laughs> Uh, well, that was, that was, he was totally obsessed with the power of contrology and how it could help people and make their lives better. And yes, he saw your body as this marvelous little movement machine that you know, it's like he could he could sense when things weren't right, when they weren't symmetrical, when they were out of balance. And then he would extrapolate in his mind, he could figure out if you were a dentist because of the way you leaned over, used one hand, or if you were a hairdresser or played golf. He had that uncanny sense about the symmetry and the way your body moved. And that uh, was, I mean, if he had genius qualities, uh, that was it. As a reader, I kept having this mental image of him almost as a watchmaker, tweaking fine details, things, things like that. But, you know, you were only able to have this relationship for, you know, a few years I don't think that it's going to be much of a spoiler to say that, you know, Joe passed away. And it was then that your background as a lawyer, your identity as a lawyer, actually ended up coming in to play for Clara after Joe's death. Could you talk about that and how that changed and what you ended up doing as an attorney for Clara? Yeah, well, I didn't do much. Uh, I mean, she she came to me right after Joe died uh, to help with the so-called estate. And uh, to my shock, I found out things about Joe and that were like, whoa, uh, gee, I mean, no one I know does that. He didn't do anything uh, that... Uh, he didn't pay taxes. He didn't take a driver's license. He wasn't married to Clara. He uh, had no bank account. He had no insurance for his employees or anything. He didn't comply with any of the things that, uh, you know, particularly, you know, kind of an uptight lawyer, which I certainly was. Uh, oh, I laughed at that part of the book when I just thought about, <laughs> you know, how many estate attorneys have had to have a conversation like that where the, you know, the widow comes and sets the equivalent of a few post-it notes on your desk. And you're like, well, where's everything else? Where are the tax <laughs> records? Well, there are no tax records. Where where are the employment contracts? Where are these, the insurance paper? Where's the paper? Although there is none. <laughs> there was nothing. I mean, not even a driver's license. So... Uh, you know, I didn't think much of it. What really interested me writing the book <laughs> was how little I thought about anything other than what was just 
then in front of me. I mean, I didn't think, oh boy, he's really on to something. If we keep this thing going, one day it'll be a huge success, a phenomenon in the exercise world. I didn't give that two cents worth of thought. And after Clara told me this, I didn't think, well, gee, why did he do that? What the, what was he hiding? What's he hiding from? Uh, I mean, he was out there. Uh, the ballet world knew him and gave him quite a bit of publicity. He had some, uh, you know, prominent clients, people who were in theater and all that. He liked to be well-known. He wasn't like he uh, uh, walked around in the shadows, but there was something there uh, hidden uh, that caused him to do all of this, and I didn't give it a moment's thought at the time. But when I got around to writing the book and telling the story of Clara coming to my office with nothing, post-it notes sort of thing, as you say, I, I said, well, you know, I didn't think about it. But then when I wrote the book, I thought that there had to be something here. And, of course, then I started to think about it and piece it together, and I had to theorize a bit, which I kind of disclose in the book. I had to connect some dots, and some of them were quite separated from one another. So yeah, it was, uh, I mean, the experience of writing the book was, for me, wonderful because of things like that. Yeah, I want to say some of the revelations uh, for readers of Caged Lion but could you share what were some of the most surprising things you found out about Joe and his childhood? And just for my listeners, I know Pilates does not sound like a German word, but Joe was a German immigrant. A German immigrant to the United States. Yes. His family had been in Germany for centuries. I don't know where the name came from. The thing that was most surprising well, it's hard to kind of rate these things. This, the surprise, of course, was to find out that the story that everyone believed about him was mostly untrue, that he created it as a shield to protect his earlier history and it sold well. Everyone believed it. It was a short story. I still, to this day, people uh, write me letters. The book's been out now for months. Write me letters and say, you know, I am so happy you did that because I never completely believed that story. I never really questioned it. But I'm so happy to to have all the work you put into you know, getting it straightened out. That was a big surprise, yes. And for the listeners, what was that myth that he created for himself? Well, he, he had this uh, very uh, concise history, which was that, and it changed a little depending on who he spoke to, but not much, that his family had been involved in gymnastics, that he... I had studied from, as a very young child anatomy books and that when he was in the 
uh, Nakalu prison as a prisoner of war in World War One, that he got everyone exercising and doing his contrology, which had the assumption that he'd already invented it, and that as a consequence, when cholera ravaged the island, Isle of Man, everyone who did his contrology did not get it. Uh, They were immune from it because of his exercises. And then afterwards, he used the bed springs that they slept on to develop his machinery. Well, all of that is completely false. You're saying that's not how cholera works? There was no cholera (laughs) on the Isle of Man. Yes, there was in Great Britain and in this country and Europe. It was an epidemic, but not one incident of it was on the Isle of Man. That's number one. Number two, bed springs were not used on any bed anywhere in the world till well after World War One. He slept on he slept on straw pallets. He and everyone else in the Nakalu prison slept on straw pallets. So you know, what on earth why did he do this? Well it was a short, believable story and it avoided something that he did not want either known or dug into, which was why he was there and where he really and how he really did develop contrology. So, I mean, these these things are fun for lawyers, <laughs> you know, to discover stuff. And uh, I had a great time dealing with it and wrestled with it. And I think, you know, my theory of what happened has nobody in the profession of teaching Pilates has questioned not once my theories here. They all say, yeah, that works, that fits. And I'll leave that to people to pick up the book to find out, uh, which again is Caged Lion, Joseph Pilates and His Legacy. But I don't want to leave people with the impression that this is all just an exploration into Joe's backstory, because what is equally as important, I think, in the book is the story of how this set of exercises first came from, you know, contrology to being known by his name after his death. It went from being this thing that some people in New York City who are in the know or had been sent by Martha Graham or, you know, knew about Pilates. But at his death, this was not something that you necessarily would have anticipated spreading internationally. And that part of the book is just as fascinating to me. And it was not without its struggles. Do you want to give listeners a little bit of a peek into some of what went on? Well, yeah, sure. I I actually uh, thank you for that because I think that is also kind of instructive and interesting story. When Joe died in 1967, there were maybe 50, maybe 100 people in the world uh, that knew of Pilates or Contrology. There were a couple of very small 
uh, studios. There were three or four people who uh, he sort of approved. He certified in today's terminology. In my terminology, he allowed them to teach. But other than that, there were these very few people. And my first thought after he died was, well, it's it's all over because uh, Pilates or Contrology was 100% Joe at that time. But among those 50 people, uh, there were 10 or 15 of us who insisted that we wanted to keep it going. Uh, why? Because we thought it was so great? No. Why? Because we knew one day it would take off? No. We wanted to keep it going because we wanted to keep doing it. That was all. It was pure selfishness, uh, constructive selfishness, but selfishness. So we kept it going. And to our amazement, it sort of ran itself. We were all extremely well-trained by Joe. Clara was quite helpful. He had three assistants who were uh, very devoted to it. They were part-time people. Uh, they kept it going. They knew the work well, and it kept going uh, for a couple of years. And then, it's again, it started to die out. Uh, not that it was such a big thing. It never got more than 50 people. We weren't able to attract new people. We were in an old gym, and we uh, got together in my office, and we decided, again, purely selfishly, that, well, let's, we, we have to modernize this, turn it into a business, have to hire someone to run it. None of the people that uh, were Joe's assistants had any interest in running a studio or running a business. And I spoke to the two or three other people who were teaching it, and none of them had the slightest interest in taking it over. And eventually, through Clara, I found a woman, Romana Krasinowska, and I think that's a kind of a fun story in the book. <laughs> I had to convince to do it, and I figured out a pretty good ploy to do that. And she took it over and saved it. Uh, we never got it going big again, but we kept it going. We moved. We designed a new studio, and in the process, she did attract uh, certain people that were helpful to keeping it going. But again, it absolutely expired, except unknown to us in New York, out on the West Coast, a man named Ron Fletcher also started teaching it with Clara's and my uh, full support. And there were two or three other people who were teaching it. One in Santa Fe, Joan Breitbart, another in Florida. And uh, there were these teeny little pockets. But it virtually stopped again after about 10 more years. And then it started to blossom, thanks to Ron Fletcher mostly, 
and another man named Ken Edelman, who started Balanced Body and started making the equipment. And it started to grow and grow and grow, and then there came another crisis when somebody thought they had purchased the name Pilates and started to tell everybody else they had to pay him a royalty to call their gyms or studios Pilates and told Ken Edelman couldn't make equipment and call it Pilates equipment without paying him a substantial royalty. And then we had a major litigation in New York uh, in federal court and got an 88-page opinion that said no, it was in the public domain in 2000. And from there, this 50-person thing of 1967 is now 20 to 30 million people worldwide. It really is just an astonishing journey. And you see when you read the book how many points at which it almost fully just died out. Um, so that's that is just really incredible as a reader to kind of go on that journey with you. Well, John, if you were talking directly to my listeners who maybe have never done Pilates, what do you see as the benefits? What would you tell them? Well, you know, right now it's such a horrible time to have to do this, but Exercise number one is vital. So very important for people like lawyers or, or doctors that uh, uh, you know are not on their feet. If you're a if you're a, a trial lawyer or in court a lot, yeah, you're on your feet. You're getting some exercise. But most lawyers and architects, doctors, a huge number of professionals are just sitting. And uh, that's just awful for you. Pilates is one of the most wonderful things you could do for yourself. Number one, it doesn't take much time. An hour, three times a week, and you, you've done it. You've stretched your body. You've improved your cardio to some extent. You've helped your posture. But the thing that's really important about it is you've taken a vacation from your stress. It requires your full attention, your full concentration. It's not sitting on an exercise watching a football game or reading a book or reading the newspaper. It requires total focus on what you're doing and how you're doing it. It's not like it's hard work. It's just hard concentration. And the result of that is that you take a vacation from your stress. Your whole stress levels go down. You stop. Everything has a different perspective from the hour that you went into the studio all bound up worrying about whether your client was going to pay the bill or whether they were going to do something stupid or what your opponent in litigation is doing. And you walk out an hour later and you think, you know, 
I can handle that. No, sure, he may do that. Your attitude changes, and everything in your body changes. You start to stand up better. You hope, uh, Your chest, you, you bring your shoulder blades back. You drop your shoulders. You relax your hands. Your, your whole body changes. And, and that's why there's so many million people that do this all the time. It's addictive in a very pleasant, uh, very rewarding kind of way. And for me, I mean, you know, I'm almost 86, and I'm, I do it at least twice a week. I take a, a private lesson on the Reformer virtually uh, once a week. I look forward to that and feel great from that, you know, for days. And, yeah, it, it's something that it should be done. It, it changes your, your mind, your attitude, your, your bearing. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much to John Howard Steele for joining us to talk about his book, Caged Lion, Joseph Pilates and His Legacy. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.